0: I think that Andrea's voice doesn't project quite as well as yours does,
1: (laughs) Nick. This is getting sexist.
0: I think that's physiology when he's uh, six foot whatever and likes to shout.
2: Yeah, I have a perpetual problem with being the loudest person in the room. My children have taken it from me.
3: That's bad. (laughs) When we interview students for our lab, if they're too loud, we're like, no, no, he won't fit in well here.
1: Welcome back to the Hormesis Podcast. This is Andrea, and I'm here with my colleague Nick, and today we're going to be discussing Medical Physics 3.0, what it's about, what we can do to implement it, and any discussion we have for ideas for it. So to start out, I'm going to lead with a quote from the report from the AAPM Medical Physics 3.0 Ad Hoc Committee. Medical Physics 3.0 is an effort commissioned by the AAPM to devise a framework of strategies by which medical physicists can maintain and improve their integral roles and in, in contributions to healthcare and its innovation under conditions of rapid change and uncertainty. So the first question is, where is this coming from? And the answer is, the landscape of healthcare is really changing. The United States spends more per capita than any other nation, and this is only increasing. Even with this expenditure, the United States is falling behind other nations on measured metrics such as life expectancy, preventable deaths, and healthcare coverage for our population. In response to this, payment methods are changing. Some possible changes include moving from fee-for-service charges to a bundled care idea, which seems to be the current most popular option. So in response to these proposed changes, hospitals are looking to cut costs and increase efficiency. Some of the concepts the hospitals are using are Lean and Six Sigma, and administrators are looking for ways to maximize productivity and minimize expenses. So you can kind of see where this is going with all these increasing pressures, staffing levels and compensation expenses are being very heavily scrutinized. So one of the things we've seen is the rise of physics assistants, and this is obviously due to various reasons, not just that. But the threat to that is our duties that are technological in nature could all ultimately be delegated to a less expensive workforce. So going back to quote the ad hoc report again, changes in healthcare driven by political, economic, technological, and regulatory factors threaten to create a perfect storm in which traditional service models and even entire professions, including medical physics are challenged. So this sounds pretty scary. And to go into that, in other words, Medical Physics 3.0 is about a positive influence in all of that and reestablishing our importance and reinforcing the central role that we should have in healthcare, possibly reaching beyond where we've been traditionally, which is nuclear medicine, medical imaging, and radiation therapy, and finding ways to put our expertise to use in other areas of healthcare. Instead of fighting these changes, we as medical physicists really need to learn to embrace them and use them to move our profession forward. We have to look for ways to enhance the contribution to physics in healthcare. And the main goal of all of this is to make sure that we're in a position to make the most of the new opportunities that are presented and maintain our position within the healthcare setting. So this committee, in order to meet these goals, emphasizes that we have to balance our clinical work with our role as a scientist. We cannot lose sight of either one. So ways that can happen are either by focusing too much on the minute details that don't affect patient care, or conversely getting stuck in a routine and not innovating. So a major question that I think we should be asking every day is, is what I'm doing improving patient care? And if it's not, Medical Physics 3.0 wants us to look at what we're doing and maybe find ways that we can answer, yes, what I'm doing is improving patient care. Medical Physics 3.0 is trying to ensure that medical physicists are trained to function as scientists and healthcare providers and not lose sight of either one of those roles. So, after that introduction, what I'd like to do is discuss with Nick some of the ideas the committee came forward of good practices as medical physicists that we should all be following. Um, They define it as approaches, principles, expectations, postures, and ways of being that allow us to be better partners to the practice. I have a little interesting factoid before we get into the details. So Medical Physics 3.0, in case you're wondering where the name came from, originally there was a Medical Physics 2.0, but that was focused mainly on imaging and diagnostic physics. So Medical Physics 3.0 is the new and improved version of that that's encompassing all aspects of medical physics and healthcare. So just a fun little trivia bit for you. So Nick, I'm going to let you go ahead and start with that one.
2: Thank you. So, the Good Practices document that the Medical Physics 3.0 Committee for the AAPM has put together leads off with striving for excellence in all aspects of your practice. Just reading directly from their Good Practices document, that excellence exists already in many of our practices. It is the fundamental goal. We enter medical physics, at least in my experience... Not necessarily because we want to make a whole bunch of money, but because we have unique skills and we want to apply them in a way that helps people. Because those unique skills as physicists could be applied in many different ways and not all of them are helpful to people, but we want to strive for this excellence in helping others. And so that's one of the things that they want to make sure that we're still focused on because you can see losing yourself in the nitty gritty of daily practice and missing that excellence.
1: So going along with maintaining our excellence, another thing that we can do is be actively involved in the clinical practice. I'm not going to read all of the details from that, but one of the important ones that I really wanted to emphasize is do not rely exclusively on electronic communications. And when I read that, it really kind of rung a bell in my head, because our center, we have five locations we have five physicists, seven dosimetrists. And in any given day, I could be working on a project for my home clinic for another clinic, and we rely heavily on Skype to communicate. And I feel like sometimes it's easier just to send a little Skype message to the dosimetrist rather than walking a few feet down the hall and walking into their office. So I think one of the important things I took out of that bullet point was it is important to still get up from your desk and go be in in the clinic and make your presence known and a face and a conversation means so much more than a text message and i think with the increasing technology we really need to stay aware of that so that's there's way more to that but that's just a quick overview of that segment
2: Another component to it is never forget that a patient is a person and that contributing to each patient's care is our primary purpose. And This goes back to the fundamental reason that we're in medicine at all is to provide care to individuals. There is a good argument that this, in the general section of good practices, does not apply to physicists that are doing pure research. But remembering that your pure research will eventually be implemented in outcomes that affect patients can help maintain the mentality that you are respecting patients and the battle that they're waging for their lives in this field.
1: So always keep in mind that they're humans we're dealing with and not just a picture on a computer, not a CT scan, not a treatment site, not a prostate. This is a person.
2: Yes, exactly. We're treating this prostate. No, we're treating this patient who has prostate cancer and we are targeting the prostate cancer. Right. Right. But the convenience of speaking makes that fall away. And that can, if you, you know, believe Wharf have an effect on how you think by letting the words you use change your minds.
1: And I mean, I've noticed myself falling into that trap a little bit, too. I mean, you're looking so heavily on a plan. You're looking at the technical aspects of it. You're not thinking it's not it's not really sacrificing the quality of what you're doing. But I think putting a person to what you're doing really impacts how you look at a problem So the next aspect of this good practices is they want you to become an absolute expert in one area. And kind of looking from my personal experience, this changes all the time. You can't say I'm going to be an expert in this one area and I'm going to be that expert forever because technology changes. When I started out my first job, I was the tomotherapy expert and it was amazing. Everyone came to me with all the problems, I could answer all the problems, I felt important, but we took the tomotherapy machine out. So I really think looking at this one, you should be an expert in something, but you should be aware that over time technology and things change and you need to kind of keep afloat of that and maybe try to look to a couple things that you can be an expert in.
2: You want to be the go-to person in some way. So the fifth point in their good practices is to be a critical thinker. And I think this encompasses the idea of making sure that you are taking care to think through everything that you do and don't just do things by rote because that is what you did the last time and you think that is what you will always do. Every step should be critically evaluated. This takes time and perhaps not every time can you critically evaluate every step. But you can make sure that you are actively engaged in thinking about what you're doing and not just clicking the boxes and going to the next step. Thinking from the world of therapy, there is an experience we all have of working with any of the Record and Verify systems, for example, where you do an action and you know a dialog box is going to pop up and that dialog box says the same thing every time and so every time you just click and ignore what it says because you've seen that error or that warning message and you know it's going to do that because it says that every time. This is called error fatigue, and it's a known problem in all areas of industry, from airline pilots to sanitation workers. But you have to make sure that you are ever vigilant against this sort of thing, where you stop critically thinking about what message you have just seen, and instead just click yes every time. Just clicking yes every time gives you errors like what we have seen in the past in our industry and what we have seen in every industry. I'm thinking the Theric-25 incidents and so on.
1: One of the things I kind of do, I know this is specific to Varian, but when those error messages pop up, there's always a details button. And I make a mental note to myself to always say, I'm going to click the details button because it's like a pause point. Instead of just seeing an error message pop up and clicking OK, I'm saying, OK, I'm going to click details and look at that. It's like a mental, so you don't just hit okay and not think about it. You're really trying to focus on what you're doing and saying, hey, an error message is popping up. This might be nothing, but if it is something, I want to catch it. I need to catch it.
2: And I wanted to add another point to critical thinking is also that you need to be able to receive criticism on your thinking processes that you, like every other person, can be fallible and can improve by the input of someone else who is an expert in a different area, as point number four suggests we all be. I am so glad you brought this up.
1: I feel like this was one of the biggest things in my training, my first job, becoming a medical physicist. You come from this environment where you want to improve yourself every day. You want to say, hey, I'm good enough. I'm just out of school. I'm smart enough. I can do this. And part of the learning curve is realizing you don't know everything, and you need to be able to ask and defer to people who know more than you. It's a really good point, Nick. Thank you. Okay, so the next item on this list is to actively seek problems in the practice and offer creative solutions. And I think this is such an important thing because I feel like this goes back to the thing about being a scientist versus being just a technician. You're trying to make yourself important in the clinic, but what Medical Physics 3.0 is all about is doing more than the minimum to make ourselves important. So what you should be doing if you're lucky enough to have downtime is thinking, what can I improve? What can I change? What can I look into further? And, you know, one of the things that we're looking into like in my personal clinic right now is maybe what are the optimal couch kicks on an SRS. So going into that, you can teach people why is it important to do this and revisit some of those ideas maybe you haven't thought about since you were in graduate school, but they're important for everyone to understand. And so you can make yourself kind of like a leader in that way and educating others in a nice way about, hey, maybe you haven't thought about this in a while, but this is why it's important that we're doing this. So seek out those problems, seek out those opportunities to engage with other people in the clinic.
2: And I want to add to that as well that this is not unique to Medical Physics 3.0, this idea of actively seeking problems. This is the concept behind the requirements from the ABR for maintenance of certification, that you complete process quality improvement projects. That there is no way that anyone's clinic is doing everything perfectly every time. And there is always an opportunity for you to improve your clinic. And while you are dedicated to this profession, you should be dedicated to continuously improving it within the bounds that you have time to do. This feeds into perhaps another point in the Medical Physics 3.0 and a tie-in with the previous episode where we discussed that perhaps the crunch in the workforce is decreasing the opportunities that physicists have to investigate new things and to correct areas of the clinic that could be improved or areas of research that they might be interested in because there simply aren't enough physicists to finish all of the work. But the point is that this is still a very important part of our profession to continuously improve.
1: And I feel like, at least personally for me, and I'm sure there are other people like this because we're all scientists at heart, the driving force in your work is being able to look at the patients, being able to look at your clinic and say, I'm contributing to this. And if you get lost in the mundane work of the everyday thing, you kind of can lose sight of that. And I feel like this is the area where you can get excited about what you're doing. You can put your creative spin on this. You can really dive into something and making time for that is important. And if that means staying an extra half hour at night, that's what's going to make your job important to you. That's what you're going to do to make an impact. And I think it's important to make time for that.
2: Exactly. Thank you. The final point is cultivating relationships and collaborations with others. This is an area that I think classically you consider physicists and you consider the person I mean, there's an entire sitcom about the idea that physicists are awkward around people and don't collaborate well and interact well with others. And a key point of remaining functional in an environment where we are dealing with people that are not like that is maintaining those collaborations with people, maintaining those personal relationships so that you can maintain professional relationships with them. It's not just a matter of being nice to people. It's a matter of finding out what research that other people that you know are into and being involved in that, to listening to if you're a therapeutic physicist, listening to the things that your physicians are saying about experiences they have in the clinic and finding ways that you can add to that relationship and you can improve their world because that will make them come to bat for you as well. And go back to point number three. It will make it better for the patient if you're helping to improve and they will find ways to help you solve those problems as well.
1: I don't know if you've seen this, Nick, but I think one of the things that's concerned me sometimes is the attitude people have towards their colleagues. I think one of the biggest things to making a functional clinic is getting along with everybody and respecting everybody. And I really appreciate the work that every team member does and what you find by respecting those people and valuing their opinions, because everyone in the clinic sees the patients and the treatments every day, and every opinion is worth listening to. And if people feel like you respect them, they're going to be more willing to help you when you need it. And we need help sometimes. We might need to get on the machine. We might need to sneak in to do a quick measurement. And everyone's going to be more willing to help you if you respect them. So I think that's really important. And maybe look at every time someone brings a problem or complains about something, that's an opportunity for you to step in and say, hey, I can help. I can work on this. So, Nick, we just talked about all these ideas from Medical Physics 3.0. Let's make this a little more personal. So... I'm sure you have plenty of examples from your daily experience in the clinic. Can you maybe give us some insight into ways that you've implemented some of these ideas in the clinic, things you've done, things you've seen?
2: I would be happy to. So one of the ways that we try to live this idea of medical physics 3.0 is... The way our clinic operates, physics is an integral part of the team and is intimately involved in all steps of the process. Our physics staff is actively involved in research for new treatment planning techniques. We are directly involved in all treatment planning This is partly because our clinic is an academic center and the philosophy of our academics is that we feel that good therapeutic physicists should know all of the parts of the planning process and all of the parts of the delivery process so that when they are in the field they have those in the back of their minds from their training to know what matters in the outcome to the patient in all of the tests that they do and in all of the steps that they're taking in the clinic and so to facilitate that all of our planning is done by physics and by physics students with the oversight of faculty physics of course but that means that we have continual direct contact with the physicians about every patient and they know that we are involved in this and that means that we have these direct lines of communication with our physicians. And it means that there are times when we have direct lines of communication with the patients themselves, where we are called down by our physicians to consult with them, with the patient, to discuss what the best way to treat a particular disease site might be. We also make sure that our physics is present at all simulations so that much as many centers might do this with dosimetry being present at simulations so they know exactly what's going on there and they can translate that knowledge to the plans that they create. By having physics present, not only do we know more for this particular patient that we're planning, we also are able to see patterns that would be opaque to us if we weren't physically present at the simulation process and we're only hearing secondhand from dosimetrists saying they didn't like how this had been going and they felt that this was wrong. By being physically present, we can begin to see the things that may be improved.
1: I don't necessarily want to interrupt you, but I do have something I really want to add to that. And getting prepared for this episode, I talked to a few of my colleagues, I brought up some of the ideas from Medical Physics 3.0. And the overreaching theme that everybody said is that in order to be effective at inducing change and being seen as an integral, important member of your team, you have to be on board with the physicians. You have to have their support. You have to have them at your side. And I think a lot of what you're saying are ways that you make sure that the physicians appreciate you and respect you and your opinions. And I think, can you speak to that at all?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is exactly correct. Fundamentally, the way the clinic is structured, the physician brings the patient in. The physician is the last line for all of the billing. Nothing can be billed without the physician's name on it. And so they are what makes the department exist. Equally, without the support of physics, the department could not exist because the technical and regulatory side could not be met. And the regulatory environment has created the clinical space where you cannot help but have a physicist present.
1: So I think, Nick, what you're trying to get at is that the overarching theme of Medical Physics 3.0 is we can't just exist. We can't just be there because we have to be there. We can't just check the boxes. We can't just say, billing requires this, so I'm doing it. We have to find ways to go above and beyond that idea and really find a passion in the clinic and work with that to make the clinic better.
2: I think that that's exactly right. And I don't think it's just find the passion. I think that many of us have the passion. I think that most physicists have the passion and know the points of we're here for the patients. I think it's making people realize that that is why we are here that we are not just a line item a cost center for the hospital that we are there because if they didn't have us there people would die
1: so i think that's so interesting that you mentioned that because we come from very different environments nick works at a university hospital and i work at a nonprofit community hospital so our environments are the same in a lot of ways but they're very different We don't have dedicated time set aside for research. We don't have the luxury of having an academic day or a day that we can just do research. We are constantly bombarded with clinical activities. So some of the challenges with that are that on any given day, I could be expected to be at two different clinics. I could have two different sets of physicians requesting things from me, two different sets of dosimetrists. And I have to balance all of those things while still trying to find ways to do innovative new things. And one of the things that I've kind of found myself getting stuck in this rut of is when do you find time for this? So reading through this Medical Physics 3.0, I was really inspired by this story from UC San Diego, where what they're doing is they are creating a model where the physicist meets with the patient before the first simulation to describe how the treatment's going to work, how the simulation's going to work, and then meeting again with them before their first treatment to describe the plan. So this is a very physics time intensive thing. And in our environment, we don't have any extra time. <laughs> We're stretched thin as it is. Some days it's a juggle trying to make sure everyone's where they need to be and we have enough people. So I brought this up to my boss just kind of, you know, thinking like, hey, this is something to talk about. This is really cool. And I was so shocked at the positive reaction I got to it, which is, I think, something to say that even if you think, you know, your clinic is really strapped, bring it up to the people you're working with because you can come up with creative ideas together. And I think that's one of the values of being in a group is that we can come up with these ideas together and don't just neglect an idea you have, like bring it forward. So what happened my boss said, you know, that's really interesting. We don't have time for it. We came up with this idea. Hey, well, maybe we can't do it for every patient. Where would this bring the most value? So our breath hold and our gating simulations, I think a lot of times with those patients having a perspective of a physicist there to say, hey, I'm at your side. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here at the sim. I'm going to be here the first day of treatment. Let me go through with you how this works, what we're looking for, what we need. And that might give them a confidence that they might not have otherwise, calm them down. A lot of what we see with these patients is they're just really nervous. And if there's somebody there that they know is the scientific champion in all of this, we're a physicist, that we are the scientists, that can calm them down. And I think even if it's a small segment of patients, if you can just get in there and someone can see the benefit from that, then you can expand it maybe to other people. So I think some of these ideas, what I don't want people to do is look at them and think, We don't have time. We can never implement them. Okay, maybe you can't implement what UC San Diego is doing. I mean, that's a huge thing that requires a lot of manpower.
2: And they are a university.
1: So that's another difference between what they're experiencing, what we're experiencing. And it's also the different reality of Nick's world versus my world is that is a university setting where you might have residents, you might have students where you have more time to do things like that. And we don't have the time but I think all of us can make a little time to make little changes, and those little changes can add up to something really big. But try to find something little you can do. Just start, anything small can be an improvement. And that's kind of what I wanted to bring with that from my experience.
2: And I think that we really do need to make that time because the alternative is that we are seen as a cost center. And when you look at how large organizations treat cost centers, You don't have to look any further than how the business world treats IT, information technology, or information services, your tech folks. They are always besieged by budget cuts and by the inability to properly staff for the amount of work that is required because... For most companies, it is seen as this is something that just costs us money and doesn't actually interact with our customers and make it so that we can make money.
1: So you brought up IT. So I want to mention one of the things I think they've done to try to address that, at least our our hospital, I know if it's happening at our hospital, it's happening in other places. They try to bill for some of their services, even if it's billing within the hospital. So you want a new computer. Okay, it's going to cost you this much money. And bundled into that cost is the cost for them to set everything up. So I don't think we want to go that route because what that opens you up to is outsourcing. If you say, Hey, it's going to cost me this much money to do this piece of work. Okay. Well I can hire someone else to do it. That's maybe a little bit less qualified and they can get it done cheaper. Like I don't think we want to monetize every one of our services because I think there's so much we bring to the clinic that you cannot monetize.
2: That's absolutely valid. And the only way to maintain the dynamic where a perceived cost center is allowed to thrive and create positive contributions to the entire hospital or to the department it serves is by getting the buy-in from the administration or ourselves being part of the administration to ensure that it is understood that our services are not just checking a box. They are making sure that there are boxes to be checked, if you will.
1: So at this point, I I think we would really benefit from getting the opinion of some of our other physics colleagues. So I really want to bring Sean and Allison into this one and see if they have any opinions, ideas, things they've implemented in their clinic that they can add to this.
0: So, what you guys have talked about when you're going through what is medical physics 3.0, you kind of tangentially touch on having your thinking challenged by others, become an expert in an area, cultivate relationships with others, but you don't ever talk about the fact that radiation oncology requires every discipline to come together. You've got people who do planning, you've got people who do the treatment who are totally separate from all of this somehow. You've got physicists, physicians, nurses, front desk staff who have to coordinate a lot of these different things, and as well. Well, you know, if you have somebody under anesthesia, we do a lot of anesthesia cases. They have no idea what our requirements are, so us being involved in those types of treatments is crucial because we can communicate important technical pieces of information that maybe other people from outside the field would do something different when they hear, oh, this is what you're trying to do. So then, Don. Yeah.
1: Do you think part of our job is knowing when to pull people in from other disciplines?
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. So. A great example is for pacemakers or implanted cardiac devices, right? So luckily out here, most of the devices we see are from Medtronic. Medtronic has a very thorough documentation of what the acceptable radiation limits are to the device, including dose rate, cumulative dose, what types of energies you're supposed to use. If it's too close to the field, some steps you can take. And we know those those recommendations by heart. We see this device, we're like, okay, we know what we've got to go through in the planning process. And we also know that we got to be pulling electrophysiology in sometimes because we're going to have to turn this pacemaker dependent patient onto a asynchronous pacing mode, which could cause them problems. So we need somebody here who can read an EKG, who can make an intervention if they need to, and potentially keep that patient alive if they have a problem. So it's, you know, that type of recommendation is something I have to be involved in probably probably four to five times a year.
1: So Sean, this is making a really good case for one of the medical physics 3.0 ideas of getting yourself known in the hospital, making sure that other disciplines in the hospital know you exist because then when you have to go to these people, they know who you are. They're not saying, "Oh, there's a physicist. What what is a physicist doing in healthcare? I don't understand." We have to make a name for ourselves and make it known that we exist. So maybe when we go to these people, they already know who we are or maybe they come to us first with some of these problems.
0: Yeah. And I mean, that's in some ways, one of the first things I felt like I had to do when I started my position at Upstate was, okay, not only did I need to do that in the hospital, I need to do that within the department. And that was a real strong emphasis for me when I, I joined this new department. One of the things that I noticed is that my office is way the hell off in the middle of nowhere land. You kind of have to leave breadcrumbs to figure out where I am uh, for people to find me. So I started, spent a lot of time just shadowing the therapist for the first two weeks. You know, I was there on a limited permit. I wasn't a full physicist because New York state has licensing requirements and I hadn't passed part two yet. And so my time wasn't really booked up yet. And I just decided, you know, Hey, I want to be out and see how this clinic works. And I'll follow Dosimetry around for as long as they'll tolerate me. I'll follow the therapist around for as long as they'll tolerate me. I'll come in for warm ups. They start warm ups at like five thirty. That was those were some long days. <laughs> but you know, I learned how to warm up every machine. I learned how everything got done. Um, and in the process, you know, th- suddenly everybody in this pretty wide system, learned who I was and what I was all about at the same time. And that's how I really was able to eventually go in and start making pushes to, hey, maybe we can do some electronic medical record stuff. We can move our prescriptions from this paper trifold to electronic prescriptions and ARIA, things like that, and, and gain traction in that regard because everybody knew what I was here for and what I'd been doing.
1: You know, one of the things that goes along with that that I started doing, our clinic operates, we have an early physicist and a late physicist. So the early physicist is there for warm-ups and all of that and for the first start of the day. And one of the things I like to do when I'm early is to make a rounds to all of the machines and just say, hey, I'm here. Are you having any trouble? They have a pathway that they can contact us if there's trouble. So usually I know there's not an issue, but I really feel like this goes back to the getting away from electronic communications, showing your face, a lot of times they'll bring up things like it's not a problem enough that they would call you or page you, but if you're there, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, this or that, and you're really putting some value into your work. So I think maybe just walking around once or twice a day and saying hi and asking if there's anything you can help with would go a long way.
2: Exactly. I think there's a similar thing that I had started to do when I became the director of clinical physics which was create a meeting between myself and the lead therapist on a weekly basis. So five to 10 minute meeting, we say, hi, I find out are there any things that aren't going the way that she felt they should go in the clinic that physics could do something about.
1: That's putting you know value in her opinion too, which I think is really important.
0: Yeah. You know, it goes back to the fact that this is a team sport and we're not, the, you know, if you think of it as a football team, like the the physicians, obviously the quarterback, but we're the, you know, we're the center, we're the, the guy who snaps the ball and keeps everything together and helps coordinate everything. And, and that's like, that's a key role. And I think that good clinics recognize that good clinics have strong physics involvement and clinics that struggle tend to have a little bit less. They don't value that teamwork aspect quite as much.
2: Now, we've spent a good deal of time talking on the therapeutic side because that's the core of our experiences for Sean, Andrew, and and myself. There is a lot in the medical physics 3.0 idea that isn't just the therapy physicist because we do have a fair bit of interaction with all of the other members of the team. But the diagnostic side could perfectly reasonably accomplish all of their goals of quality assurance and quality control on their machines with no interaction with anyone who's operating the machines. So Medical Physics 3.0 having evolved out of 2.0 because they wanted to extend the work of 2.0 on trying to make diagnostic physicists have this same ownership of the areas that they operate in. Do we have any comments to that aspect that we can add? Uh,
0: I, I have one but I'll defer to Allison if she's got a better story than mine.
3: I am not a diagnostic physicist, that's all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> I have no therapy or imaging clinical experience.
0: Right. No, I know that you're not a diagnostic physicist, but you hang out with diagnostic physicists. No, I don't. No. Well, I've got I do have a diagnostic <laughs> anecdote. So for the diagnostic side, I'm going to toot Ken Ogden's horn again. He's the primary diagnostic physicist we have at Upstate. And one of the things that he started getting involved in was 3D printing. He just sort of really liked the idea of having a 3D printer. He'd make 3D models out of different structures. And uh, one of the surgeons who he interacted with, just because he's out. He has a lot of different interests. He's been at Upstate for a while. He kind of knows everybody. One of the surgeons noticed this 3D printer and was like, you know, it would be really useful if we could get a model of what's going on on this MRI so I can take a look at it with my hands and figure out what I'm going to do before I go in and have to make a hole in somebody's head. And so that's a pretty routine thing now for him is he will make 3D models of patients' brains to help the surgeons understand the best pathways for them to attack a certain thing. And so he'll use different colored plastics. He'll have like transparent layers. They'll be able to be taken apart and put back together. So the surgeon can go in and kind of visualize what else might be in the way. You know, it's a great example of how just him knowing who else is around and him being out and having lunch in the cafeteria instead of at his desk and also just having a wide range of interests and being generally interested in the science around him translated into something that routinely impacts patient care now at our facility.
2: It's a really good example. Thank you.
1: I I think, honestly, a lot of the diagnostic work is getting more integrated into what we're doing as therapy physicists. So we might not be able to speak exactly to what a diagnostic physicist might experience in their day-to-day work. I know, for example, we bring diagnostic physicists in to help us with our annual QA QAN our KV imagers. And that's something that is in their expertise and in their realm. And it's really nice to interact with them in that way. And I think, you know, even if it's something we could do, you know, that's within the realm of things like maybe... As a therapy physicist, we don't need to bring them in. But I think bringing them in is really beneficial because it gives us a chance to talk about some things. They can give us some ideas of ways we can improve some image quality, things we might be doing. So they come in also and do our annual CTQA for us as well. And we do it with them. We're standing right there next to them. We kind of do it together as a group effort And I think maybe part of this is bringing us together as professions, not operating in separate boxes, but saying, hey, we can bring a diagnostic physicist into our therapy world and they can provide some valuable insight and ideas that things we might not have thought of.
2: I think that also part of the discussion that is presented in the Medical Physics 3.0 literature that the AAPM has put out include the idea of starting to look at big data and AI and the types of things that medical physics can bring to that realm. But I think that subject is a little bit too big to dive into in this discussion about medical physics 3.0. So I think that's something that we should shelve for a little while.
1: And that that might be something coming up.
0: Teaser. I know that Allison had said that she's got some research-related anecdotes. I'd like to hear one of those.
3: Yeah. So anytime I hear about MedPhys 3.0 at, you know, AAPM or the conferences and stuff, they always focus on the clinical impact, which you guys have been covering. But when I was looking through the literature, it actually goes into a little bit of the research side, which really surprised me, but I think is great. So one topic that you've already touched on quite a bit is expanding beyond traditional limits of medical physics. So I've got a question and then I'm hoping this leads well into my point is, so how does maintenance of certification work?
2: So there is some complexity in that question. Right now, maintenance of certification involves continuing education, demonstrating that you are continuing to at least be exposed to new ideas or refreshing existing ideas, and as well, the process quality improvement projects, the requirement that you do something to demonstrate that you are continuing to research the way to improve your personal clinic or all clinics everywhere.
3: Okay, so something that AAPM has started to kind of emphasize a little bit, they've got an Expanding Horizons travel grant. I believe it's for students and trainees, but maybe it goes beyond that. But that's the whole idea of, you know, going to a non-medical physics conference and interacting with non-medical physicists and looking at research in other areas. And I was wondering, would that work as a way to maintain your certification or would that kind of be a wasted conference for you.
2: I think the the credits that we require to maintain certification for the ABR have to meet certain requirements. They have to be either accredited by the ABR for the self-assessment module things, the SAMs, or they have to be accredited by CAMPEP for regular continuing education credits, or they have to be AMA, Category 1 credits. And those are the only ones that we can use to meet that part of the requirement.
1: So this might be something that the APM could look into with trying to promote this medical physics 3.0 idea, is maybe talking to the ABR, trying to expand some of the ways we can get credits.
2: That's perfectly valid. And the other point would be that this doesn't necessarily have to fall into those. It certainly isn't wasted to broaden your horizons it could fall into categories of how can you use this information that you're learning from outside to improve the quality of what you do. And simply being exposed to new ideas, perhaps that creates an idea for how you'll use something you heard in your clinic and writing that up into a quality improvement project is perfectly reasonable and that is, again, still part of the maintenance of certification did you have further thoughts on that?
3: Not really. So my lab group happens to be very interactive with MD clinicians, not radiation oncologists, more just general oncologists, which I think is very valuable for my experience. And to that point, I'm actually going to the American Society of Clinical Oncology this year, as well as APM, so I can kind of bring physics to a more clinical conference. So... That's kind of my take and how, especially on the research side, I think expanding beyond the traditional limits of medical physics, I think that's the natural place to start, of course. So to the point of expanding medical physics, did you get a uh, feeling that they had specific ways to address how to expand medical physics, particularly in the research arena? Or did it feel more like they included it so that they weren't excluding people like me?
1: There was a whole list of ideas i feel like it was mainly broken down into therapy diagnostic
0: nuclear well one of the one of the things with it is that if you have an idea that's already outside of the scope of medical physics then you're going to try and make it part of it I, i think you know what they're trying to do is like hey Let's not pigeonhole ourselves. And this is this is something I think that we really should be worried about, especially on the therapy side, is that we are getting very much focused on clinic, 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 especially with the CAMPEP residency requirement. We're not allowed to bring in all those diverse views we used to have. Like this never used to be a problem because most of the people who were giving fellowships to or were awarding with Lifetime Achievement Awards, they didn't go to a traditional school for a bachelor's in, in medical physics or a master's in medical physics, they got their degree in something else and they entered the field through a sort of a circuitous pathway.
3: As the only person with a bachelor's in medical physics here, I feel personally attacked by that I feel personally attacked
0: by a lot of statements. You should. You should. I I was going right at you. I wanted
2: to point out that our university that three of the people on this podcast got degrees from now offers a concentration in medical physics in their physics department.
3: Oh, yeah. Ours was in radiological health science concentration in pre-medical physics. There are three of us my year. You know
1: what, though? Honestly, I think that's a really cool thing. Because I think part of the problem is nobody really knows about medical physics. So if you look at how people hear about medical physics, I know there was a whole report that went into this. But most of us don't hear about it in college. We hear about it after. So maybe we're missing a whole segment of people.
3: I was in high school.
2: Wow. In high school. That is a very progressive high school.
3: No, my mom sat me down when I was 15 and told me I needed to figure out what I was doing with my life. Oh my gosh. Your mom's the best. I shouted a nurse and that was terrible. And then I shouted a medical physicist and I was like, oh, thank God, no patient contact.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: and then he decided to go for the research and even less yeah. <laughs> patient contact.
0: <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it. <laughs>
2: But what you were saying about the concentration in medical physics goes right back to all of the people that had entered prior to things like this being brought into existence in these codified pathways had a diverse experience base. I came from astrophysics, where part of what I was working on was detector systems for astrophysics. The types of detector systems we used in astrophysics at that time are very similar to the types of detector systems we now implement in larger form factors for our imaging systems. And a significant area of research in imaging systems is things like cadmium telluride detector systems, Mm -hmm. which are based on cadmium telluride solar cell technology, which you would not necessarily be exposed to as a research physicist or as a medical physicist, unless you were involved in all of the research in solid state solar technology. So I think that we do lose a bit by streamlining down these pathways. And this goes back to the argument for the structure of education in general. And the United States has taken the approach that you do not specialize generally until you're in college for a particular field. In Europe, that tends to be several years earlier, where you go to a junior college that is specialized to what you intend to study.
1: But I feel like that's almost going backwards, because I feel like what the argument was, was that people had pathways later in life to choose to go into medical physics after they developed this diverse background. And you're talking about, you know, like when I was 16, what I thought I wanted to do versus what I ended up doing are very different when I was 16, I hadn't even taken a physics class. I had no idea I would have liked physics.
2: Because you don't know what you actually would be interested in when you first go there. No. And, and you don't know the things that a broad experience base can bring to the field are innumerable.
0: So I've got some, some stuff a little bit back to other things besides just like, okay, training and background and being known. I think, you know, one of the things that we talked about, remember that each case is a person. Recently, we had a patient come through who had a pretty extreme case of disease on their scalp. It's covering their whole head. We were looking at trying to do electrons from all these different areas and had to mark out the fields and the field edges and so on. Patient went home, just washed everything off. All the stuff we were like, hey, could you just try and keep this on? We need to be able to line up to you these these marks again. And they said, nope, nope, we're not, we're not doing that. And so we wound up having to put them onto our Tomo machine to do scalp IMRT. But one of the dosimetrists asked me, The other day they were like, you know, hey, how do you really feel about this? We're taking a patient who got zero dose effectively to their brain, to the deep parts of their brain. And now we're giving them at best, a lot of their brain is getting 30% of the total dose which is a significant amount. I mean, it's, it's not, of course, a whole brain, but it's not nothing either. And it just really struck me that that was their perspective on this, whereas a lot of the other people up the line had been like, okay, well, we need to do this safely. We need to make it so that we can do our, our jobs effectively and didn't think about this secondary effect if we move them on to a different type of treatment platform that would make it so that we could be effective in our jobs, but not necessarily thinking about this repercussion on the normal tissue dose. It was just, you know, it's one of these examples of how that type of thinking could maybe make us take another look at that previous electron setup and say, okay, well, is there a different way for us to get this to work?
1: I think that's another example of why it's so important for us to interact with patients too, because then, you know, you think about more of the things that they're worried about, what it looks like from their perspective, and we can approach their treatment with that in mind and maybe come up with new ways to make them feel more comfortable.
2: We can adapt our treatments to how they respond to the environment that
0: they've been placed in.
1: That takes a whole new meaning to adaptive planning. Uh Adaptive planning 3.0.
0: Adaptive planning 3.0. We got to get to 1.0 first. (laughs) (laughs) We're not quite there yet.
2: Isn't that uh, replanning
0: I had in neck halfway through? That was that was 0.0. That was the alpha test of adaptive replanning, <laughs> which we do all the time. We we do it on breast plans more now. I, I also thought it was really interesting that we talked a bit about, going back to the patient interaction, Andrea, you brought up how at your DIBH and your gating treatments, you have a physicist go out and... Introduce themselves to the patient and explain a little bit more to the patient about what the treatment is going to entail.
1: I just want to add, I I hope I didn't make it sound like we're not talking to them before their simulation. It's just not the physicist necessarily who's doing that. And I feel like it's important for it to be us.
0: No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that it's maybe we don't have physics at every sim or, and we don't have a physicist who talks to each patient before sim and before treatment for every case. But, you know, it's definitely something I think that's gaining traction in a lot of clinical settings where we are taking advantage of a lot of natural things that the patient is going to do. And so having the patient be involved in their care and understand why they need to be involved in their care, who's the best person to give that talk? You know, sometimes there are just Very awkward physicists, to go back to Nick's Big Bang Theory reference, you know. But it's something that is being more and more recognized across the field.
1: I feel like I would be one of those awkward people. No. And I know I have been. No. But the more you do it, Mm -hmm. the more comfortable you get.
0: The fact that you're sitting here recording your voice to talk to hundreds, maybe, of unknown people dozens.
2: There, are dozens
0: there are dozens of dozens us. of our <laughs> listeners uh yeah you're not one of those awkward people there are, you know you'll meet a couple of them and they you know right away like oh wow okay i'm glad i'm glad i got them the opportunity to speak to you because i feel like that doesn't happen very often
1: <laughs> i feel like there's this pressure that i feel when you're talking to somebody in that position they are terrified mm-hmm. and if you aren't a hundred percent correct in the way that you approach something, you're wrong. And that might be a personal flaw with me, that I overanalyze everything I want to say because I want it to be perfect.
2: That actually brings up a very interesting experience that I had. When I was a junior physicist and just entering the field, we would be called down to review the alignment of ultrasound images in the room with the patient this was with an ultrasound system for aligning the prostate and i was speaking as a physicist saying to the therapist difficult to see the images i think this looks good this is kind of right i kind of like this and it was brought to my attention that i'm standing there in the room next to the patient making hemming and hawing sounds about the quality of what treatment they're about to receive and I'm speaking as a scientist of I'm generally pretty confident in the images that I have here but I am not overstating my confidence I am simply saying okay I think this is okay but what the patient hears is not I think this is okay they hear he thinks this is bad what are they doing and it makes them uncomfortable and it takes away the confidence that they might have had otherwise in the process. What I gleaned from this was not to lie about your confidence in the thing, but to correctly state to a a non-scientific observer what your confidence is. And when you see that these images are as good as they could be, don't say, I think these are as good as they could be. Say, this looks great. This looks good. I agree with how this is aligned. Because the things that you are seeing as, this could be better, can't be better for this patient on this day, on this set of images right now. And by giving the patient that bit of information that this could be better, they think, why isn't it? Instead of, this is as good as I think it could be right now, today, for this patient, which you can give them that feeling by saying, this is good, this is great. Excellent alignment, that sort of thing.
1: One of the things I really noticed myself doing was saying, I think. So the physician might say, Do they look straight? I think it looks good. So I took I think out of my vocabulary when I'm in the room with a patient. And if you just think about those little phrases you say that convey a lack of confidence and try to limit them, that can go a long way.
2: And I think it fundamentally isn't that we lack confidence in what we're saying,
1: nobody can convey that.
2: It's that we know the limits of our confidence and we are in an environment where you should convey the limits of your confidence because to fail to do so would label you as a charlatan that never thinks that they could do wrong and is incapable of analyzing the limits of their knowledge. But that is not what a patient needs to hear when they're laying on the table.
1: And just to be clear, we're not talking about deceiving anyone. This is purely the way we communicate and things that we might say that might not portray what we really want to say. I'm not talking about faking anything. I'm not talking about sugarcoating anything, hiding things. We don't want to do any of that. And I just want to make that very clear.
0: You think you're running up against a, a problem with what you're what you're trying to go into here is that you're assuming something about the level of expertise of the patient. And while it's not appropriate to assume that every patient is going to be able to understand the nuances of how you are used to conveying your opinion or how you're used to conveying the information that you're confident in. You know, we can't treat the patient as though they don't know anything. I think that, yes, keep it simple, don't use a lot of terms of art, but it it's appropriate to say yeah. The images we got were good. We got what we needed to today. You know, things like that are good phrases that don't say, you know, this could be better or this could be worse or or whatnot. It, it says we did what we came here to do and now you get to go home and we'll get in touch with you and we've got a plan ready to go for you. You know, that type of thing is, is a, it's hard to learn how to tell somebody that without making those little uh, slips that we do all the time. But When you're talking to them, it doesn't have to be about the uncertainties that I'm seeing. It doesn't have to be about that. It just is about, can I give you the sense of, I know what I'm doing and we know what we're doing. We're going to be able to help you to the best of our abilities. It's not about deceiving. It's not about calibrating, really. I think it's, it's more just about making that type of connection with somebody who's understandably very scared. So there's one other thing that this kind of butts up against. And so Medical Physics 3.0 is about asserting the role of the physicist in clinical medicine. And I have this debate with one of my colleagues all the time. And it is that the fact that we are board certified means that we are allowed to offer professional opinions. We don't just have to stick to the facts. It's good for us to, to know the facts, it's good for us to understand the research and the science, but being board certified in a way is a bestowal of expertise and that means that you can say something that I believe a better way to do this would be to try X, Y, or Z. Or I believe that we should hold the beam on this gated patient because they lost the regularity with which they were breathing during the sim. Things like that, that are recommendations. They're not necessarily like commands, but they are strong opinions. Whereas my colleague says we are just there to be factual. We're there to be technical experts, but not to say, I think that we should do this. And I'm just curious, with this context of medical physics 3.0 and us reasserting our roles in clinical medicine and the benefits that we bring to patients, do you think that we're best served by remaining on the fact-based side? Or do you think that us submitting an opinion for consideration, is that, is that a way to think about it?
1: I have a very strong opinion. I really think that your job as a physicist is to interpret the data in some ways. We're not saying, you know, like this is how physiologically this is going to affect someone. That's kind of the role of the physician. But we are uniquely qualified to assess the overall situation and to say, you know, like this breathing pattern isn't regular. This is how it's going to affect the treatment. So I think that we're qualified and we should be speaking to those things. I don't think we should be saying this is the dose we should be delivering. But I I I think some of those biological things are outside of our realm. But as far as looking at data like that and saying, you know, this is a fact. This is how this is going to affect the treatment. That's not really an opinion. That's our job to convey.
2: Well, I think it is an opinion of how much deviation is reasonable. And the expertise we have in how radiation interacts with matter and how these systems of the gating and the machine parameters and and the machine's performance and its ability to turn on in the moment you asked it to, and the patient's physiological positioning even, all plays into
0: play into your interpretation of what the uncertainty in the delivered treatment is at that given moment.
1: Yeah, and that's our job.
0: Yeah. When I see a patient cough, you know, we have to be present at all gated SBRT treatments, not every gated treatment so like if you get 30 fractions we don't have to be there for each one but for all sbrts we've got to be there and so my thought was okay i've got to be here to make sure that every mu that gets delivered is delivered as close in accordance to the plan as i can reasonably achieve balancing things like treatment time and imaging and um, setup uncertainty and so lots of times i'd see patients cough and i'd be like could you please hold the beam yeah. And I, I didn't, I, you know, there was a physician there. Sometimes I would just ask the therapist, hey, could you please hold the beam? I showed them like, hey, this is how you do a beam hold. Like you put your finger on the beam on button, you just push it down. It won't, it won't turn on until you let go of that. But, you know, I got confronted one day and I was, it was, I was told by one of our physicians, you should not be saying this. You should not be directing the treatment which according to New York State Part 16 is 100% correct. But in my mind, it's not necessarily me directing the treatment. I'm not making a decision as to what it is exactly we're treating. But I am offering a a strong opinion that I don't believe that what you're treating right now matches the planned setup that was approved by a physician. We're not matching the written directive. And that, you know.
1: Don't you think that It's important that every single person that's involved with the treatment, if they see something that is not appropriate or they're uncomfortable with, they're empowered to say, stop. Yeah. We need to look into this further.
2: Yeah. I would argue that you're doing the exact opposite of directing the treatment. You're directing the interruption of the treatment. Yes. I think certainly everyone on the team should have some level of veto power of this should go through or not.
1: The therapist can see a weird breathing pattern and say, I'm going to stop treatment. They should be empowered to do that.
0: Yeah. And they they actually started to do that after a little while. They would just keep a closer eye on the breathing trace. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that comes into this is that is still an opinion. We're offering something that we have a hard time proving what is the dose being delivered when a patient does cough? Because typically we don't have a set of 40 CT images that show us what, everything that happened in their body during the cough. You know, we don't have facts to back up exactly what we're saying. We are saying, From how I understand this system works and my interpretation of what's happening here, I don't believe this is achieving what you want to achieve. Would you please not deliver beam during this this setting? Mm -hmm. That's a very specific scenario for really an overarching theme of. I still think that you should be able to proffer opinions. So if we see retreatment scenarios and there's research out showing like cumulative BED limits for things like spinal cord or osteoradionecrosis, things that I've had to calculate in the past and I've had to write an email to a physician and say, I don't believe that this meets these guidelines. I think that we need to either find a way to, to work around this or you need to inform the patient of this increased risk of side effects. You know, that is an opinion right? Because I've gone and interpreted facts, compared that to the scenario I'm looking at right now and said, okay, well, A doesn't match B in my eyes. And in your eyes, maybe that's a different ball of wax. There there may be some different algebra that you're going to put into this, but this is the opinion that I have. And I'm going to write this down. I'm going to send this to you because I have, you know, I showed you what I did. And then in the end, it's my interpretation. I think that's part of the reason we have DABR after our names is because we should be allowed to have that type of statement and that ability to say these types of things. Sorry, it's another tangent. We're keeping Allison up. I'm sorry, Allison.
1: So not to plug our social media, but I really feel like this is another opportunity to hear from you. So maybe you can tell us some stories from your clinic. I'm especially interested in the community clinics like where I work, places where you're already stretched thin. So the smallest of small stories, the smallest way you're implementing these ideas, all those little things add up to big things. And I'd love to hear all of your small things that you're doing to improve your relationship with everyone in the clinic.
2: So please come and visit us at reddit.com slash r slash hormesis podcast or or on our twitter at at hormesis podcast
1: but i think the only way this works is if we all talk to each other and i think this is something that we can all collaborate on and share our ideas and make our environment a better place yeah so in conclusion thank you everyone for listening to us we hope you join us again next episode we hope to hear you on our We hope to hear from you on our social media. And we think Medical Physics 3.0 is a really important topic. There's so much more to say about it. So please join us in conversation on our Reddit page. Have a good night or day (laughs) or afternoon. This is Andrea. And Nick. Allison. And Sean. Thank you again.